0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Akira Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, I was on Twitter on Saturday evening and I saw you tweet, uh, I have a ridiculous betting story on Brooke Khan. saving it for the Showtime Boxing podcast, you're going to love this one. Uh, I always love... Uh, finding out what you're going to be doing on the podcast by uh, seeing it on Twitter. I uh, really love that. But anyway, um, sounds intriguing. I am indeed uh, intrigued. What is the uh, betting story?
1: Okay, here it is. Uh, so, you know, we discussed uh, Kel Brook versus Amir Khan on the pod last week, and we both agreed Brook was likely to win. We talked about how Khan's chin always betrays him. So by the time we finished podcasting, I was almost immediately uh, on my various sports books, looking up odds on Brooke by KO. And I went ahead and bet that. It was plus 125, easy money. Uh, But then I placed another bet later in the week. I was looking at Khan's record. Gee, five losses, four by stoppage, all four within the first six rounds. The last two, Canelo got him in six. Crawford got him in six. What the hell? KO six sounds about right here. I looked it up plus 1,700, 17 to 1 on Kelbrook Brook in the 6th, and I bet it. Great stuff, right? Yeah. Well, I have four different sportsbook accounts. Uh, one of them, they won't let me block myself from playing online casino, uh, which... Even though I am somehow ahead lifetime playing online casino games, I know that it's not sustainable, and I don't like the temptation. So on sites where I bet sports or play poker but can block online casino without blocking everything, I do. I opt out of online casino access. But there's this one site where if I opt out of one thing, I have to opt out of everything. So instead, what I do with that site is I never leave money in the account. I deposit to bet. I withdraw when I win, I deposit again. And sometimes, when I have a small amount of money on the site, I bet it on a long shot or a parlay to try to turn it into an amount worth withdrawing. Would you like to know, Kieran, how much I had in my account that oh, I bet
0: no. on Ko 6 Oh, it was greater than zero, right? There was actually some in there.
1: It was greater than zero. It was... One dollar and twenty five cents. Oh, one of the sharpest sports bets of my life. Seventeen to <laughs> one. I nailed it and I turned a buck twenty five into a little over twenty bucks. Even when I'm a winner, feels like I'm a loser, Kieran. Still a pizza, dude. Yes. Now <laughs> I turned I turned, you know, the
0: cost of one pizza crust
1: into a whole <laughs> pizza, I guess.
0: So there's that. Oh, my man, there was a lot of emotional whiplash with that story. <laughs> yes, I told you.
1: <laughs> I, I, that's why I wanted to save it for the podcast. It was, uh, you know, a l- little too good for Twitter. And, uh, yep, a real emotional roller coaster there.
0: Oh, man, well, there you go. Oh, well, that'll <laughs> learn you.
1: <laughs> yes. No, I'm Certainly, the next time that I have a good hunch like that, I will risk more and it will lose. Of course. Right. Of course.
0: That's, that's the way it's bound to be. Yes. Um, All right, let's actually, among other things, let's look at the uh, the fight that got you a pizza if nothing else Uh, we do have plenty of boxing actually to look back on and ahead to this week uh so coming up we will preview next saturday's showtime championship boxing triple header headlined by recent podcast guest chris Colbert taking on replacement opponent hector garcia we'll take a look at the week's news with a number of fights being confirmed or seemingly on the verge of being made but we begin with this last weekend's action uh shortly we'll recap Friday's showbox double header from orlando florida but let's focus first of all on saturday night where kelbrook finally got to experience the moment that he had been dreaming of for a long, long time, Eric. Yep, I've
1: kind of spoiled the result on, on this already, in case anyone <laughs> didn't know, but in Manchester, England on Saturday night, or Saturday late afternoon where we are, a feud that had been more than fifteen years in the making came to a head as Brooke faced off against hated rival Amir Khan. Both men talked a good game in the build-up, but once the bell rang, only one man really delivered. Brooke had every advantage, the most notable being that he proved much less shot. He was (laughs) bigger, stronger, all around better. But Khan's chin, always a weakness, is just completely gone at age 35. Uh, Brooke hurt Khan twice in the first round and again late in the third by the fifth. He was just walking him down, and he got the stoppage when referee Victor Laughlin called a halt to the proceedings 51 seconds into the sixth, locking up those big bucks for me. <laughs> uh, with the win, Brooke advances his record to 40-3 and with 28 KOs, while Khan falls to 34-6 and with 21 knockouts. But this was about much more than records. This was personal, and you could see afterward how much victory meant to Brooke, who has certainly appeared to be the one who most wanted to make the fight over the years. Kieran, we've talked a couple of times about how when fighters meet when both are past their peaks, it can actually make for more entertaining fights. Was this one of those occasions? How did you feel watching this long overdue grudge fight?
0: I didn't really enjoy it actually. I I thought it was pretty obvious from early in the first round that Khan had nothing. Um, that you talked about this that look, even at his best, you know, for all his natural talent and speed, he was often technically shabby he'd leave himself squared up or off balance or fall in with his punches or leave his chin there a, a little bit too long and um and he did all of that in the first two minutes and they were the best two minutes of the fight for him um but it was worse than that i thought his punches lacked snap he was flailing with them his feet were off balance um it's difficult for me to tell how much Brook has left or how good he could still be because it became very clear early on that all he had to do was just keep it clean, keep it calm, keep it cool, and he wouldn't just get a win but a stoppage. It was pretty inevitable quite early on. And yes, Khan sort of held it together for the second and most of the third round, but there was really nothing to deter Brook, let alone hurt him. He had nothing on those punches that he did did throw. Um, and, and every time Brook did land, it just it just sent khan off again for, yeah. for a little while and, and it just you know the recovery each time took longer and longer uh look amir khan is done he is the definition of shot uh he's had a terrific career he did absolutely as much as anybody with with that chin and his seeming inability to learn technique could possibly have done he had skill he had heart he had talent rather he had heart he and he was a nice guy um you know it, it's just one of the things that sucks you know we're objective in our, in our coverage of the sport but it's always a little rough to see that one last fight too many in any boxer and you know and i've i haven't talked to him here for for a while but there was a period where i got to know him a little bit and it's that worse when you know the boxer a little yeah. bit um you know I, i'm happy that kelbrook got the win and that it means so much to him um i don't know if he sticks around to what happens you know he's talking about fighting chris eubank jr or connor ben and i guess that means we'll see him end up taking that one fight more than he probably should uh i'm glad they both made a lot of money off each other i'd kind of like kelbrook to retire although i doubt that he will but i really hope amir khan retires Uh, i wish he'd retired before this but i really hope he retires now yeah i'm right with you on that i mean
1: we sometimes hear people in the boxing media say that they're reluctant to tell a fighter when to retire, that it isn't their mm. place. And, and I get that. I don't really feel that way. If a guy looks shot to me, if the reward isn't worth the risk because he's become such a danger to himself, I don't mind writing or podcasting my opinion that I wish for him to retire, especially with Amir Khan right now. It, it, it's it's not even debatable. He, he yep. just can't do it physically anymore. Before the first punch even landed in this fight, I made a note that his legs looked stiff and heavy, that he wasn't moving the way he used to. And then the punches started landing, and and we all saw what happened. He got wobbled by everything. And uh, in the sixth round, the punch that was the start of the end, he got badly buckled by a flush jab. Um, It was hard to watch. Khan would now be at risk of losing to even the most mediocre club fighter. So I'm right with you. I really, really hope he calls it a career. Kelbrook, Brook, I think he can go either way. If he wants to retire, great. You know, this is a meaningful win to go out on. But as you said, he mentioned Eubank Jr., Connor Ben. There are a few marketable fights for him. Um, Eubank probably too big for him. Yeah. But look, I mean, who has Brook lost to? Prime Triple G in a fight in which Brook was doing well for a few rounds. Errol Spence in a fight Brook was perhaps winning. And Terrence Crawford. He's only lost to top-tier pound-for-pound guys. He might still be a world-class fighter. We mm. we don't really know. And, and beating the remains of Amir Khan certainly didn't tell us one way or the other. But I would think Kel Brook has at least one more good payday in him. It might be, like you said, it might, it might end badly and it might be one, one more fight against one of those guys at Eubank or a Ben is what shows him the door, but uh, coming off this good win over Khan, I, I'd be a little surprised if he did retire. Um, and uh, yeah, he can certainly still make some money and he, he might still be
0: yeah. a top tier guy. It's yeah. kind of hard to know. Yeah, exactly. really impossible to tell when he's, basically was just working out on a punch bag Right. For, for, I mean, I'm trying not to be disrespectful to him here, but that's, that's really what it was. So yeah, it, it, it's difficult to say. You have to figure looking at how high he was afterwards that it was kind of like the boost that he wanted. And, and much as I m- might say, well, it'd be nice if he, if he walked away like this, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think uh, right now the last thing Kell Brook is thinking about is, Is giving it up again. I think he's probably re-energized, would be my guess, at least for now.
1: Yeah, although every now and then you see those guys like Joe Calzaghe comes to mind. He got those couple of big names, Roy Jones and Bernard Hopkins, Mm. on his record, and he certainly could have kept going. And he just sort of felt like, well, this would be a perfect moment to step away. And he did, and he stayed away. Maybe... I just don't know what kind of guy Kell Brook is and how right. motivated he is to keep fighting. Maybe he'll look at this and say, well, that's a perfect win to go out on. But, yeah, the way he was talking afterwards, probably not going to be the end
0: for yeah. him. Indeed. Uh, meanwhile, on Saturday night, also on zone from Tijuana, uh, hometown hero Jaime Mongia moved to 39-0 and with 31 stoppages with a third-round stoppage of Demetrius Ballard, who falls to 21-1-1 with 13 KOs. Uh, Eric... Four years ago, almost now, Nevada refused to sanction Munguia against Triple G. Safe to say that wouldn't happen now, but just how good is Munguia now? How would he fare against the other top middleweights right now, you think?
1: Well, with the caveat that this win came against Demetrius Ballard, who we said last week was made to order, was the perfect opponent to get Munguia an easy homecoming knockout win, with that asterisk noted... I thought Munguia looked great and is undoubtedly a better fighter than he was a couple of years ago. The partnership with Eric Morales is really working. His technique has gotten more refined. There's not nearly as much wasted motion or, or, or wasted punches as there used to be. He's more economical and more effective. And now that he's fighting in this more economical style, but still finishing tremendously once he gets a guy hurt, He's reminding me more of a prime Fernando Vargas. Mm. Um, And as I find myself comparing Munguia and Vargas, I can't help but observe that because Nevada blocked that triple G fight, we've seen Munguia go down the exact opposite developmental path of what Vargas did. I mean, there's no question that Vargas was a way better fighter at 21 than Munguia was at 21. Uh, but. They moved Vargas quickly, he took a lot of punishment against Trinidad, and he was never the same. Munguia, the opposite. He's twenty-five years old. And who's his best opponent? Uh Gabe Rosado, maybe? Right. Toriano Johnson, Saddam Ali. He's been moved very slowly, hasn't fought an elite opponent, and that seems to be paying off as he's had the opportunity to learn, improve, fill out physically. Um, but now they gotta put him in with a real opponent. Um we, we talked about this in previewing the fight last week. I said, we won't know about Golovkin or Charlo's availability until the Canelo plans are settled. Right. Um, but just in terms of how he would fare against those guys, or Andrade, I mean, those are the top middleweights right now. You know, as best I can guess, Mungia golovkin is about a 50-50 fight. I might even favor Mungia right now. Mm. Uh, Charlo's a slight favorite over Mungia, but only slight. I think that's a tremendous fight. And Andrade is also a favorite. And I can't imagine Munguia's people pushing for that fight. But that said, Munguia is at least a live dog there. And Andrade hasn't faced a top opponent in his entire 14-year career either. (laughs) So who the hell knows how well he'd do. Point being, bottom line, Munguia against any of the other top three guys at 160 pounds looks like a quality fight right now. Uh, But, you know, do keep in mind that this was Demetrius Ballard on Saturday in Tijuana. There's a lot of guesswork involved in extracting meaning from that fight. Yeah. All right. So those are the Saturday results. Uh, On Friday, Showbox returned to the Caribe Royale in Orlando for what was scheduled as a three-fight card but became a doubleheader when Sean Hempel, who had been scheduled to face Joe George in a light heavyweight contest, withdrew due to an injury suffered during his final day of sparring. The main event pitted undefeated lightweight Jermaine Ortiz against once-beaten Nahir Albright. In what appeared on paper a tight contest, in fact, you and I almost resorted to coin flips when picking our winners, Uh, in the ring on fight night, my pick, Ortiz, dominated, using speed, ring generalship, footwork, and a wide selection of punches to score a unanimous decision win by scores of 98-92 and 97-93 twice. Kieran, how surprised were you by the fact that Ortiz not only won, but won so convincingly in what we both thought would be a close fight? And Ortiz said afterward that he'd like to face Raleigh Romero. Is he ready for that kind of opponent?
0: Yeah, I don't know that it was a surprise necessarily because, like you said, I I really was almost flipping a coin when making the predictions simply because I hadn't seen quite enough of either man to know very much for certain. What I will say, though, is it's part of the reason I picked Albright. Was, was after looking at Ortiz's draw with Joseph Adorno last time out. And it's probably unfair, and, and we talked about this with Brian Campbell, to be overly critical about what was a step up in opposition and actually a highly creditable draw. But what I sort of focused on was when Ortiz opened up, he left himself looking so vulnerable, which is, which is why he went down a couple of times in that fight. And given that Albright came into this as the puncher, I figured that that might prove decisive. But at the same time, or when Ortiz wasn't squaring up and getting knocked down against the door. Now he looked nice and compact. And of course what I hadn't really paid attention to is the fact that people have the ability to learn and develop. And it was clear from his pre-fight comments that Ortiz knew he had to tighten up, focus on his boxing. And that's exactly what he did. This was out of the relatively little that I've seen of him. This was by far the best he'd looked. Um, I thought that maybe his style might play into Albright's hands, but really it was the other way around. Um, I'm not sure I saw it quite so one-sided quite as early as the lads ringside did. But as the fight progressed, he clearly took over and, and deserved the decision. Um, is he ready for a Rolly Romero? I'll say this. Styles make fights. And he has the right style to beat Rolly Romero. Yeah. Um, I- I'm just not impressed with Romero particularly. Uh, but obviously, anyway, he has other business in the form of Javante Davis right. coming up. And there's simply no way that he would choose to face Ortiz uh, unless he would, let's say, lose badly to Davis and maybe suffer another reversal. And meanwhile, Ortiz is improving and he he needs the fight. Right now, Romero is not going to be playing in those shallow waters. Um, But maybe after another win or so, I put Ortiz in with, say, a Jisrael Corrales or a Ricardo Nunez, Mm -hmm. another hard-hitting kind of person who's been around, can offer a few more uh, looks, but is perhaps past their their peak, um, and then start moving him up swiftly. I don't know if I saw greatness or potential greatness, but I did see a guy with a pretty high ceiling, and I think, and I think he could quite reasonably be thinking about title belt opportunities in the in the future.
1: Yeah, I was similarly impressed with Ortiz. Um, I mean, yes, I picked him, but I picked him by split decision. And I even said possibly disputed decision, so he certainly exceeded my expectations, and He was fast. He was smooth. He had this sweet move. It was at the end of the second round where he bobbed and ducked under a punch and transitioned to a southpaw stance as he came out of the crouch and then landed punches from that stance. It was a really impressive little moment. This is an athletic and well-schooled boxer. I love his left hook. I love his right uppercut. He throws both of those punches beautifully. When he had his hands way down at his sides, which isn't something I love to see. But when (laughs) he did that, he looked almost Roy Jonesy in spots. Um, The broadcast team asked an interesting question in round eight. Uh, They asked, does Ortiz need to finish the show now? In this case, no, I I don't think he needed to at all. I think a lopsided decision win was just fine for his stock. There was never the sense that he had Albright ready to go and that he should have finished him. Um, So I, I thought this was just a totally impressive showbox performance. Um, I do have a couple of trivial observations, as I often do. I I know you love these, Kieran. Um, First, full credit to Barry Tompkins for the Nahir Woo Albright nickname pronunciation. I I like the effort and the execution, especially compared to ring announcer Thomas Triber, who just gave a subdued Nahir Woo Albright.
0: Um,
1: And speaking of Triber, he's usually clean shaven but he was sporting the gray scruff on Friday night. I wonder if anti-beardite Gareth Davis knows about this and has talked to Thomas yet.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, at the very least, we're going to have to make sure that he's aware of it and and get a Twitter beef going. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, All right. Also on Friday night, in the co-main event, uh, 154-pounders Paul Kroll and Marquise Taylor fought to a split decision draw over eight rounds. A result with which seemingly nobody agreed. Crawl uh, 41 by five rounds to three. The Showbox announced crew all had Taylor by seven to one or six to two. The response on Twitter was vociferous in its condemnation, with Ludabella, for example, using the word corrupt in capital letters, no less, to describe the judging. Uh, against that, CompuBox figures for the two fighters were a million miles apart. And the sheer range in the scorecards, 77-75 uh, crawl, Taylor and 76-76 suggest that either the judges were utterly incompetent or that there were in fact a number of close and difficult to score rounds. Eric, which side of the fence do you fall on? And do you have any other thoughts about the fight?
1: Well, I think there were a handful of close and difficult to score rounds. And I also think none of the Three scorecards were great, really, Um, Mm -hmm. but one was clearly worse than the others to my eyes, and that was the 77-75 card for Kroll. Um, Let's name the judge. Uh, We could name all three, really, but let's focus on that one. Tito Wilgo, who will go right back to judging more fights after this because (laughs) hashtag boxing. Uh, But uh, five rounds for Kroll. Look, I don't mind Kroll himself saying that was the correct score. He's permitted to be biased. I don't see how a judge gets to 5-3 Kroll. I had a 5-3 Taylor, and I jotted down before the scores were announced, could be wider. I thought rounds 4, 5, 6, and 8 were all clear-cut Taylor rounds. The others, I gave 1, 2, and 7 to Kroll, noting that each of those was close. And I gave round 3 to Taylor, also close. This was a lousy draw decision, um, but 5-3 Kroll was especially lousy and went beyond the realm of possibility, honestly. Um, what a shame for Taylor, who, who boxed well and deserves to have a win on his record. Uh, I thought our boy BC had a good observation in the third round, talking about Kroll tiring himself out by swinging wildly and missing, and Brian said, this is how upsets happen. Yep. Uh, if scored correctly, this is how yes. upsets happen. Um Kroll was definitely getting tired as the fight wore on, almost got knocked down by a left hook in the sixth, in part because his legs were fading. Um, And, you know, for a guy with just one career KO win, Taylor does seem to hit hard enough to get respect. Naturally, after any draw, you ask, should they do it again? I say this was entertaining enough that they may as well, you know, run it right back on Showbox. Let's see if Taylor can make it right on his record or if Kroll can learn and improve um now c- can you stomach uh, one more trivial observation kieran oh bring it okay the ref massimo montanani what a name if i ever need to change my name which um <laughs> Hey, we need to be ready to flee when the uh, gazpacho arrives, right? Uh, so, That's right. That's right. Um, if I need a new name, call me Massimo Montanani. I'm uh, I'm, I'm legit jealous of him for having that name. <laughs> I figure I'm probably sleeping with a different girl every single night of college if my name is Massimo Montanani.
0: Yeah, I probably dress well, got a good car. Uh-huh. Drink a lot of coffee, but good coffee.
1: Right. Oh, like uh, just espresso. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like yeah. really good espresso. Yeah. I'm actually I... picturing you as Michael Corleone wandering around the Sicilian <laughs> villages, actually. Yes. Uh, why am I blanking Especially on... Especially now you've told everybody what your name is. <laughs>
1: what <Why laughs> are you right. blanking
0: on what now? The the
1: name of the woman that he marries while he's in Italy uh, uh, starts alone. with... Uh, Apollonia, That's it. Yeah, yeah, because because I can hear him uh, yelling as the uh, you know right. I, w- I was I g- was about to give spoilers. Uh, maybe I won't, but uh, yeah, the Abalone. It's only no! been
0: 50 years since it came out.
1: There's a lot. <laughs> uh, of- yeah, but you know, it's it's my all time favorite movie, and so I, I wouldn't. Just in case, I wouldn't want to spoil it for for anyone. But uh, yeah, in any case, if I ever am exiled <laughs> to Corleone, Italy, <laughs> call me Massimo Montanari.
0: There you go. By the way, I have just finished reading a book that is the story of the making of The Godfather from Mario Puzo being a poor constantly rejected writer to to writing that all the way through the whole making of the movie and um thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it as a godfather fan i think you might enjoy it
1: okay i might check that out and and i believe they're making a movie about the making of the godfather ah um which i i'm guessing now that i know that there's this book it's probably they're using that as the primary source material for the movie or something but uh there you go all right (laughs) Uh, Yes, no more Eric. You call me Eric again, uh, we got problems. Call me Massimo. (laughs)
0: Okay. All right. Looking ahead. uh, Boxing returns to Showtime this Saturday, February 26th. God, are we already at February 26th? In the form of a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header from the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas. The main event features a recent guest on the podcast, Chris Primetime Colbert, who is looking to continue his move up the packed 130-pound rankings. But he won't be taking on Roger Gutierrez, the opponent he was expecting to face. When he talked with us a few weeks back, Gutierrez tested positive for COVID-19. He's been replaced by Hector Garcia, who is 14-0 with 10 knockouts and most recently is coming off a decision win over Isaac Avalar, which is decent. This feels like a very, very big step up for Garcia. Uh, Not least as that contest with Avalar was an eight-rounder. In fact, four of Garcia's last five were scheduled eight-rounders, the only exception being a decision win over Anvar Yunusov which was actually a scheduled 11-rounder. Um, mm. I saw it on BoxRick. I thought there must have been some mistake. Maybe it was a technical decision over 11. I never found the video. Nope, there it is, 11 rounds. Mm. Uh, never heard of such a thing, so I haven't. <laughs> um, anyway, Eric, I have two questions for you. Kay. Garcia is clearly entering this contest as an underdog, but is there anything to suggest that you should be a live one? Uh, And if the answer is no, and I guess if the answer is yes, you don't have to answer the second question. But if the answer is no, is this a potential lose-lose fight for Colbert? And if he wins easily, it will be an expected result for which he won't receive much credit. That's an interesting question about the lose-lose.
1: And I I guess it might have applied to the Roger Gutierrez fight also, since Mm. in my view, Garcia is kind of a lateral step from Gutierrez. Uh, The original opponent and the replacement opponent are right around the same level, which does happen to appear to be a level below Colbert. Um, I guess I'd push back against the idea of a lose-lose because Colbert is not a superstar who's coming off big wins over top guys, and now he's wasting his time against a B-level opponent. Colbert is still a work in progress taking these progression fights. He's coming down perhaps a bit here from King Tug and Arboleda. Certainly Garcia is a... Step down from those guys in terms of what he's proven in the ring, um, but he's not a stiff, and uh, you know Colbert is not a, expected to be facing the best of the best yet. So, no, I, I'd say not a lose-lose in my view. If Prime Time gets the easy win that you suggest uh, for that lose-lose scenario, as long as he doesn't stink out the joint, which is not something he seems yeah. likely to do, then it goes down as. Just that. An easy win, good exposure in the main event on Showtime, good experience, move forward. Uh, Now, how good is Garcia? How much of a threat is he? He's good. He's solid. He was an Olympian in 2016, representing the Dominican Republic. He has a top trainer in Ismael Salas. And while his quality of opposition deserves to be scoffed at, he has sparred, at least, with the likes of Devin Haney and Raleigh Romero. So it's not like he's being thrown into the deep end here completely unprepared. Also, Garcia is a southpaw. Colbert was preparing for a righty and now has to prepare for a lefty on about a week's notice. Mm-hmm. That makes Garcia that little bit more alive as an underdog. And the big thing that shakes my confidence in Colbert a little is that Chris can be hit. Um, he, mm-hmm. he covers up and stands still a lot, and you can tag him. Uh, you mentioned the Avalar win for Garcia. That was just two months ago. So he's staying very active. He's coming yeah. in ready to go here. And in that Avalar fight, Garcia got dropped by a southpaw right hook in the first round and got up and swept the next seven rounds. So he's made of stern stuff. Uh, Colbert is the favorite. He should be. He's quicker and more explosive. uh, And and Garcia, other than being a southpaw, is pretty basic. But I think there are possible paths to the upset here.
0: Yeah, yeah. You used the word solid, and that's actually the, the very word that I jotted down here myself to describe him. He hasn't had a time to do much as a professional Garcia. And and his amateur background isn't enormous, but, you know, the fights that he did have as an amateur, he did reasonably well, won a couple of tournaments, made it to the 2016 Olympics. He looks like he's quite a strong guy, um, and and his technique is decent, but, you know, maybe his punches are a little slow and ever so slightly wide. Um, And as a result of those things, he can be caught by fast punches inside, which is how he got put in his butt against Avalar, and you would think is meat and drink to Colbert. Um, But I also agree with you, in the sense of whether it's a lose-lose proposition, simply because, as you said, Corbett's not sufficiently well-known or advanced that an off-night against a rugged opponent will be considered a major setback. Um, But he's also far enough along that we pretty much know who he is. So, um, you know, we understand that he's this very skillful guy who's just continuing to improve. And... I doubt very much that if this didn't go perfectly according to plan, and this is assuming that Colbert wins, but maybe not in a dominating fashion, I don't know that we'd necessarily have to reevaluate what we think of him. I think it would probably end up being more of a a plus point for Garcia than for Colbert, Um, which, of course, isn't to deny he needs to win and ideally to win well to continue his upward progress. But that would have been true if he'd been fighting Gutierrez, as if he was fighting Garcia. Yeah.
1: Uh, all right, moving on to the co-main. It is a classic crossroads fight, as veteran, former 140-pound belt holder Victor Postol takes on rising star Gary Antoine Russell, the only one of three boxing Russell brothers who has yet to appear on the podcast. Uh, Russell's pro record is perfect, 14-0 with 14 knockouts. Postol is 31-3 with 12 stoppages. And over his last six, he's just 3-3, and which suggests a decline, but those three losses have all been on points and against the highest caliber of opponent. Terrence Crawford in 2016, Josh Taylor in 2018, and Jose Ramirez by majority decision in 2020. Kieran, how likely is it that Antoine maintains his perfect KO record, and how big of a statement would it be if he were to do so?
0: Oh, it would be a huge statement if he were to stop Postel. Um Absolutely enormous. Achieving what Crawford and Taylor and Ramirez couldn't, um look it will be big enough if he beats Postol at all Postol's one of those guys who maybe doesn't get a ton of credit because he isn't the most exciting of boxers. there aren't very many moments in his highlight reel um you know if someone were to ask you what's his best punch you might struggle to answer until you came come up with a slightly apologetic um his jab <laughs> um and when that's the answer it's, it's almost always damning with fake praise but let's not forget he and Crawford were unbeaten title holders when they met in 2016. Crawford took a lot of heat for the way in which he won. He realized how dangerous Postol was. And he went for a win today, impress tomorrow approach, which was the right approach for him to take, especially when you see how his career has gone since then. Taylor even took a little bit of criticism at home for the manner of his win too, even though he really deserved praise for overcoming a very tough opponent. And Ramirez, as you mentioned, had to settle for a majority decision. Um, yeah, and you look at those guys he's lost to. Uh, one of the top two or three boxers in the world, pound for pound, the best junior welterweight in the world, and perhaps the 2nd base junior welterweight in the world. If he beats Postol, Russell isn't just saying that he has the potential to be one of the best 140-pounders. He's saying that he is one yeah. right now. And if he does what none of those other guys have done and stops him, he immediately becomes the new big dog in the division, the guy who uh, announces that that he's coming to take Josh Taylor's crown. Uh, he just elevates himself completely from prospect-slash-contender to major, major player. Mm. Um, the opening bout sees the return to Showtime of £115-pound titleist Joen Ancajas. We last saw on the network in his most recent outing, a decision win over Jonathan Rodriguez 10 months ago. He's unbeaten in a decade and puts his record of 33-1-2 with 22 stoppages up against undefeated Fernando Martinez, who's 13-0 with eight knockouts from Argentina. Eric, what's the scouting report on Martinez? Does he pose a threat to Anker Hess's dream of mixing it up with the big boys or the big little boys at the top of this extraordinarily talent-laden division?
1: Well, the scouting report on Martinez is, first of all, tough to scout. Uh, He's fought nobody you've heard of. Uh, His most recent opponent had 21 losses, and I only found two of his pro fights on YouTube. But there's enough there to get a sense of his style, just not how good he is because the opposition was never really going to stand up to him. But he's a compact fighter, The punches are short and sharp, but thrown with a lot of torque. He gets his body into them. He's actually something of a grunter. You'll hear him putting his all into every punch. Um, He doesn't seem a big one-shot puncher, but he keeps coming and he keeps landing. He wears guys down. Uh, Again, guys at this limited level. Um, He's never been knocked down as a pro but neither has Ancajas, for that matter. And in terms of number of fights and quality of opposition, that's obviously a more impressive stat for Mm -hmm. Ancajas than it is for Martinez. So is Martinez a threat to Ancajas' hopes of fighting Srisaket and Chocolatito and so forth? It's really hard to say. He he looks Mm -hmm. good, but uh, turn down your volume, uh, listeners, because here comes Teddy Atlas. Against who? Against who? (laughs) (laughs) Did I give enough warning to turn down the volume? Probably not. Uh, I don't know. Ancajas, you know, he's the known quantity here. Uh, Second longest reigning male belt holder, second most defenses. His opposition hasn't been spectacular either, but we know what he can do. He fought well against Jonathan Rodriguez. I thought he won clearly. It was an exciting fight. Ancajas did lots of damage with body shots. That could be the key to victory here. Hurting Martinez to the body as the Argentine gets overly aggressive. I don't know. This is matchmaking that I can't grade right now. Um, Mm. I I suspect it will be reasonably competitive, but I can't say for sure. Uh, By the way, you ready for an Ancajas fun fact? Of course. If you start to type Jerwin in the box rec search, it auto-corrects to Jerkin. (laughs) Don't shoot the messenger, Karen. Just passing (laughs) along information that I consider newsworthy.
0: It's just a relentless tsunami of fascinating (laughs) observations this week, isn't it? It really is. I came loaded for bear. Wow. Damn, I'll tell you. Um, All right. Well, you know what? Let's segue from that into making our predictions. I'm not making
1: making your segues (laughs) easy this week.
0: No, no, you're not. But it's OK. It's good that I have to work for it sometimes. Right. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, first, uh, let's offer a quick update in our uh, scores uh, following in our picks competition following Friday's showbox. box. Uh, we began that broadcast tied at three points apiece. But whereas I picked Nahira Albright to win a unanimous decision, you picked Ortiz by a split verdict. And between us, we were correct. It was a unanimous decision. for Ortiz, uh, alas, I don't get any bonus points for that. Uh, But you do get two points and take a 5-3 lead. All right, moving on. Let's look ahead to Saturday. Eric, you're up first with your pick for the main event. Chris Colbert versus Hector Garcia.
1: Well, as I said earlier, Garcia is steady, but Colbert is far and away the higher ceiling, more talented guy. It's Colbert's fight to lose. Will he get sloppy? Will he get overconfident? Will he get caught? Uh, There once was another flashy mega talent from Brooklyn named Zab Judah, who could look absolutely spectacular at times, but find ways to lose against inferior fighters. Maybe, maybe Garcia could be Colbert's Carlos Baldemir. It's doubtful, though. Um, I was rewatching Colbert versus Tug, and there was a moment early in that where Colbert got hit hard. And then marched forward and walked tug down, uh, mm. kind of like Mayweather against Mosley. Right after he took takes a big punch, he just steps right in. It was very telling about how relaxed he is in the ring and how confident he is. I'm sure Colbert will get caught a few times in this fight, but I think he'll get through it. And for the most part, dominate the fight with his hand speed and his reflexes and his determination. And I think he wants more knockouts on his record. And I think he can get one here. It won't be easy. It won't come quickly. But I'm going to say the punishment accumulates and Colbert forces a stoppage in round 10.
0: (sighs) Terrible, terrible prediction. (laughs) (laughs)
1: so so now i know you're one round off from me it's just a question of which direction
0: okay exactly um yeah look i think chris colbert's gonna win this fight uh he is i think too fast too skillful like you said He, he just appears to be a level above garcia um the only issue for me is how convincing it is uh how much difficulty garcia gives him and whether or not the contest lasts the distance um i think it may well take colbert a few rounds until he fully gets garcia completely figured out particularly with the relatively late change um but i do think once he does once he gets the timing right it will be all colbert uh so th- will colbert score a relatively rare star pitch he has just six from 16 wins which is the answer is no and that is the safe bet but speed kills and, and i do think garcia may be a smidgen vulnerable to it um i don't see colbert like Actually, knocking him out, knocking him out. Um, but I can see the fight being stopped because Garcia gets cut, or because he's just taking so much punishment at the corner, or the referee decides that enough is enough. So I'm going to go out on a very small limb here, and I'm going to say that that happens in the only conceivable round, which is the 11th. That's preposterous. There's no way this fight goes beyond 10. <laughs> outrageous all right (laughs) i don't know if people realize this but when eric and i are sitting at home watching the fight yes we we obviously (laughs) try to objectively you you know make note of what's happening in the fight but we're so actively rooting for or against a particular result at a particular time so yes i will be if garcia's head is bobbing around on his neck in the 10th round i'll be rooting for him to at least make it to the end of the round and this (laughs) it is the way of things yeah Uh, assuming this gets to at least
1: the 10th round those 10th and 11th rounds there'll be high drama for the two of us
0: yes and there will be twitter dms oh there (laughs) will yes there will Uh, all right uh russell postal is an intriguing and and a difficult pick in some ways Look, postal's actually really very good uh he's an excellent technician a solid defense like i said a very good jab and fundamentals he is a boxer more than a fighter though and that's sort of where he sort of reaches his ceiling because he, he rarely seems to have that extra gear. Um, that doesn't mean he can't punch. He took the fight out of Lucas Matisse with his boxing and then floored him and I think broke his orbital bone when he put him down for the count to take his 140-pound title. The problem is that that was back in 2015, and that was the last time he was in a fight, win or lose, that didn't make it to the final bell. The loss to Crawford, I think, seems to have taken a little bit out of him, that, that belief that he can absolutely be the best that he showed against Matisse. The counterpoint to his having pushed Taylor and Ramirez is that he lost to Taylor and Ramirez. Um, And meanwhile, the three wins he scored among those three losses have just been to Jamchipek Natmitinov. Easy for you to say. Exactly. Uh, Seer, Osgul and Mohamed Bemouni. He's also only boxing on average once a year now. And for someone who survives on skill and timing, I think that's problematic. Hmm. Um, On the other side... I've been extremely impressed by what I've seen of Russell. Um, he does seem to have it or, or legitimate skills, good boxing IQ, as you would expect from the Russell family, and, and real punching power, which you would not necessarily expect from the Russell family. Um, getting past Postol's long reach may be a problem, at least initially, but I think he has the patience and the ring smarts to do that. He, he's not the kind of guy who will keep swinging and get flustered if he can't find his target. He isn't, in other words, Lucas Matisse. I think Russell's the real deal. And given that I have a wee bit of suspicion that Postal mentally may now be in a place where he boxes well enough to come close, but not much more. And given that I expect Russell to go for it more than Crawford did, given that I think Postol's timing may be a bit off. I think I see Russell edging ahead of, a, of a, in a cagey, slightly scrappy affair by the midway point, gradually pulling away and then really asserting himself down the stretch. I'm gonna go out on a much longer limb here. And say I think he does become the first to stop postal. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna pick him to do it in well, how about the hell, the eleventh. Okay.
1: Yeah, you're you're kinda of going out on a limb either way with this pick, with this fight. Yeah. Either either you're thinking that Russell, whose best opponent so far was Giovanni Santiago, can duplicate his dominant results against a guy with ten times the track record of Santiago or you're thinking Postol at age 38 after a year and a half off is going to be the same guy he was against Ramirez and can outsmart and outbox Russell, even though Postol doesn't have the punch to keep guys very honest. You know, he hasn't won by knockout in almost eight years. Whoever you're picking here, I find it's hard to do it confidently. Yeah. Um, But I've seen youth prevail a lot lately. Uh, Bam Rodriguez against Quadras. Mark Magzio against Mr. Gary Russell. Uh, Daniel Jacobs just lost. Not to someone much younger, but but still. Um, And add in that Antoine just saw his big brother lose. I would think Mm -hmm. he's extra hungry and determined to win it for the family. So like you, I'm going with Russell. Even though there's no evidence yet that he can do it at this level, Uh, I'll go with the hunch. But I will not take him to become the first to knock Postal out. I'll say Russell by close unanimous decision. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the opener, Ancajas versus Martinez. This is a much easier fight for me to pick than Russell Postal. Not that I expect a blowout, but I just don't see how I can go against Ancajas when Martinez is as unproven and untested as he is. Ancajas, we know he's a world-class fighter, a tough out, a righty who fights southpaw. Martinez... Needs to be a lot better than I realize to pull off this upset. Um, but my gut is telling me that he lasts the distance and keeps it kind of close. Um, like I said earlier, he applies pressure and wears opponents down. So I think this is a fight where Ancajas piles up the points early, but Martina starts coming on late and makes it close on the cards. I'll go Ancajas by unanimous decision, but not a blowout. Some 8-7-5, to 8-4 to four type cards, I predict.
0: Yeah, this is interesting. I I come to the similar result, but picture a a, a fight that's almost flipped in the in the, in the mirror mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, in that, look, this guy Martinez, from what we know about him, he's a tough, awkward kind of guy. Uh, he's somebody who seems to you know like to fight in the pocket to try to wear guys down. That's going to make life difficult for Ankaas early, I think, but also make it easier late because I think that's going to sort of play to Anka Hesse's advantages, you know, his strength, his skill. Um, so I actually see a situation where Martinez initially is kind of right in 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 Ancahes' face a little bit, and Ancahes is trying to have to figure out what to do. And the first half is just grueling and tough until he does figure it out. I think the second half he does actually figure it out. But I'm not sure it's, – it's interesting because even though I think that this was perhaps the easiest one for me to pick ultimately a winner, it is also the one that I am going to pick to go the distance. Uh, I, I could sort of see him being in complete control by about round 10, but maybe just easing off a little bit because he's had to work really hard to get to where he is and the final couple rounds. He's up, and he thinks, you know what? I'm just going to get through this and get to the end. Uh, but either way, I think it ends up being, yeah, an eight to four, maybe nine to three, kind of a win for Joe Ankas. Nine
1: to three? That's preposterous. Again, it's
0: outrageous. Fire <laughs> you have no idea
1: what you're talking about. Seven to five, eight to four. Those are reasonable scores here.
0: Just outrageous. Honestly, <laughs> they just get anybody to do these podcasts. Clearly. <laughs> All right, news time. Uh, Our new segment this week consists of fights that have been signed fights, or at least a fight, cancelled or postponed, and fights that may be percolating but for various reasons have not yet quite reached fruition. Uh, Leading the first category, Shakur Stevenson, Oscar Valdez has now been signed, sealed and delivered in a £130 unification fight. With the winner, the clear top dog in that excellent division, that fight will, as anticipated, take place on April 30th. Uh, the location will be the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas. Also confirmed, undefeated welterweight and apparent surefire future superstar Jaron Boots Ennis will take on Custio Clayton in April or May on Showtime. ESPN reports that Isak Cruz, fresh off his close defeat to Javante Davis, will take on Yuri Orkis Gamboa. On the undercard of the upcoming Errol Spence Urbenis Ugas pay per view. Uh, one fight that is off, at least for now, is the junior middleweight rematch between Jamel Charlo and Brian Castano, as a result of Castano suffering a tear in his biceps. Fights that may or may not be close. Uh, Vasily Lamachenko has reportedly agreed to his side of a deal to challenge George Cambosis following Cambosis's lightweight championship win of a Teofimo Lopez, although Cambosis is reportedly also considering Devin Haney as a possible first defense uh, and a manifestation of the concern expressed by Gareth Davis on this very podcast a few weeks ago, Dylan uh, White has apparently as of our recording on Sunday, still not signed to face Tyson Fury for the heavyweight championship of the world. By the terms of the mammoth purse agreement, he has until the close of business tomorrow, Monday, February 21st to get that done. So by the time you guys listen to this, you may have more news and information than we do as we record this. Uh, our PBC, has reportedly upped its offer to Canelo Alvarez to include not just a Cinco de Mayo weekend tussle with Jamal Charlo, but also a Mexican Independence Day battle with David Benavides too. However, Canelo has publicly rebuffed reports that he is ready to agree to the matchroom counter offer for a May date against Dmitry Bivol and a September 3rd go-round with Gennady Golovkin. That's a lot there, all of that. So <laughs> instead of asking you to comment on all of it, I'm going to do something different uh ask you to pick out the one or two items that maybe most leap out at you there okay this this is indeed a little
1: different uh i'll start with hashtag canelo watch um, all <laughs> indications are that the matchroom deal has the inside track here even if canelo is adamant that nothing is done It's interesting that what's reportedly holding up the deal is Triple G signing on. Supposedly Mm. Canelo and Bivol are on board, but Golovkin hasn't signed on the proverbial dotted line, which I guess must mean he's holding out for more money or maybe insisting on a catch weight below 168. I have to assume Triple G wants the third fight, um, but he's being tough in negotiations. And it would be wild if that blows up the whole matchroom deal. Like if PBC swoops in while Golovkin is holding out, um, that would be an interesting little twist. But my suspicion is that this Bivol-Golovkin two-fight deal will get done and will get announced soon. And if it does, that'll tell me Canelo sees something in Beevil that he's confident he can explore. Yeah. Um, and I'll also comment on this Kambosos situation. It did seem Haney was going to get that fight, and I guess he overplayed his hand, and uh, Lomachenko is in there being less demanding. If we do get Loma versus Cambosos, which is a great fight, by the way, I, I like everything about that, if we get that, man, that would be quite the twist, that the biggest fight in the lightweight division that gets done involves zero of the four princes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, Teofimo, he he beat Lomachenko, but he's since taken a step back. Haney reportedly asked for too much money. Ryan Garcia is still coming back from his mental health hiatus. And Javante is just playing in a whole different sandbox right now. Um, I love Lomachenko versus Cambosos, but man, it's crazy that you turned, coined the term Four Princes, what, a year and a half ago? Yeah. And we have yet to see a single fight between yeah. any of them, and, and there's nothing in the works
0: toward that end. It is not feeling as if our friend Matt Whitecross is going to be doing a follow-up <laughs> documentary series, does it?
1: Probably not, unless it's just like all of a sudden when they're all like in their late 30s, they come together yeah. and have a great series of fights uh, when,
0: when it's a little too late. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, and what does it say about Cambosos? that those are the two options he's considering, right? Yeah. He could very easily, I assume, um, go back to Australia and fight in front of a huge crowd against a no-hope, but just to get that, look at me, I'm the lightweight champ defense out the way but no he's uh he's potentially going in against Vasily Lomachenko uh that's that's the guy I tell you I like George Cambosis more and more and more um you know he, he not only fought a great fight did a terrific job of continuing to promote the fight weeks yep. after it had happened uh, and now if this goes ahead yeah full credit to him um the the news item that I wanted to just touch on even though we've talked about it before And we will talk about it again, of course, is I just really want to acknowledge Stevenson Valdez being made as as it feels as if we've been talking about potential big fights at 130 for years now. Um, Starting from when Miguel Buchelton and Francesco Vargas were at the the top of the division. Um, What I like about this is it's not just a great matchup. Indeed, it is the matchup to be made at 130. Each man made it through an incredibly demanding and meaningful semifinal to get here. You know, Valdez knocking out Burchell and Stevenson dominating and stopping Jamel Herring. And also, you know, given that quality of opposition, I do think that a clear win here by either man, uh, and particularly by Stevenson, who emerged as a tremendous natural talent, who's been steadily ratcheting up his quality of opposition, who doesn't have suspicions over him would really put the winner, I think, in a real shout of top 10 pound for pound consideration. It's a tough list to get onto because we're actually really stacked with talent at the very top level in this sport right now. But this is one of those that could be almost a career-defining night for, for either man. I mean, especially for Stevenson, I could almost see it, not saying that this is how the fight will go, but on a level of really establishing him, it could almost be Floyd against Gennaro Hernandez. Mm. This could be one of those kind of nights where a, a really big star could be born, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I I think you're right that, I think whoever wins this is probably cracking the the bottom of the top 10. I, I might have even put Valdez on my at the bottom of the top 10 after the Burchelt win but then with the PED issues took him off I can't remember exactly but he was certainly right in that mix and it, yeah it feels like either one of these guys is one big win away and certainly beating Valdez or beating Stevenson qualifies as a big win
0: definitely
1: all right tweet of the week
0: time and it's actually sort of a tweet It's a retweet of an Instagram story. Hmm. And the Instagram is itself a cut of paste of something that somebody posted somewhere. It's all very nebulous (laughs) and cannibalistic. The sole reason I've picked it is to set us up for the top five challenge. So it's up to you whether you want to say anything in response or wait to see what the challenge is that we'll be following immediately afterward. Anyway, our friend Dan Raphael tweeted a screenshot of an Instagram post from Canelo, who posted a bunch of laugh emojis with the phrase, love this, above the following. Uh, I won't do all of it. It starts, if he fought Charlo, he ducked Bivol. If he fought Bivol, he ducked Charlo. If he fought better BF, he ducked Bivol. If he fought Benavides, he ducked Ch- Benavides. It goes on like this. You understand where it's all going, right. really. Um, there's about a dozen lines of this. And yes, it's all very self-serving and self-pitying on Canelo's part. And there are, of course, nuanced observations to be made, not just about whoever Canelo ends up picking next, but who and when he's fought others, you know, when he's fought others in the past. Uh, but what it kind of, the reason that I wanted to pick it, what makes it especially amusing is that in the comments thread to Dan's retweet, it all starts off with, yeah, he's got a good point. And then it just devolves, <laughs> you know, somebody says, well, that's not, I don't think that anybody's saying that he'd be ducking triple G followed by a, of course he's ducking triple G. He should be right. O and two against triple G. And before you know it, the whole thing has completely kicked off. The point being Twitter and boxing Twitter has been an interesting development. It can include <laughs> the intelligent the observational, the witty, as we've tried to highlight with our Tweet of the Week most weeks, not this one. Um, some of the stuff from British fans during Brooke Khan was gold. Um, it can also be profoundly dumb and often offensive. Uh, either way, it's generally a safe bet that the smallest of developments will cause approximately one half of boxing Twitter to retreat into one corner, the other half of boxing Twitter to, Twitter to retreat into the other corner, and pretty much all of boxing Twitter to re- lose its collective mind. And that's what brings us to this week's top five challenge. Okay. The challenge is this. Given how Twitter reacts, indeed totally overreacts, to literally everything, can you imagine how it would have responded to any number of meaningful, historical, and just straight-up crazy moments and fights in boxing history? In fact, I do want you to imagine it. What are your choices, Eric, for the top five pre-twitter boxing moments that would have made boxing twitter explode
1: oh okay this is this is fun i like this um all right i've, I've got like a couple of possibilities coming right to mind but uh boy there's a lot of boxing history to uh <laughs> yes, to comb so, through, yes, to comb so through here but uh i'm i'm pretty sure some of the crazier more outrageous more controversial uh ones will uh will will stand out so okay this is a good one i like this I,
0: i'm almost tempted to sort of add as another thing come up with a sample tweet from you know from one of said fights but that's a that's an optional extra for you there to that, think
1: that, that. yeah that might be a, a, a little bit much but a, a, as i'm putting it together if i'm if i'm feeling like i've got a, a exactly funny, a funny theoretical twitter observation from either either a uh smart person making a interesting twitter note or just an idiot twittering as idiots do uh yeah there might be some fun ideas that i can uh, work in there
0: and i'm sure actually boxing twitter that is listening to this will have suggestions of its own so uh, uh do, feel free to help eric out uh, yes. which actually before we finish this week's episode i want to do give a quick shout out to um listeners who did send us suggestions for fights that i missed in last week's top five list which was a list of the greatest examples of fighters overcoming adversity to secure wins regular correspondent david cushion had an excellent one which uh, i did think about and then just plum forgot uh, our friend andy lee's come from behind knockout win over john jackson at madison square garden Andy was slumped into the ropes and right. seemingly on the verge of being knocked out when he just unleashed the patented hook from hell um with which he ended plenty of fights. Uh Jamie, uh at J underscore Nreb offered Juan Manuel Marquez getting off the deck after being dropped hard by Michael katsidis and Paul Grammatico had an excellent one. A fight that I had, to be honest, completely forgotten about. Um Arthur Abraham prevailing in a war with Edison Miranda, even though he had to fight several rounds with his jaw broken in two places. Um, And then I record another one uh, watching yesterday's uh, events uh, that uh, Lee Jackson, i had been ringside for, but had sort of forgotten about. Amir Khan was pretty much out on his feet at the end against Marcus Maidana for like the last couple of rounds, but was able to hold on for a win in their fight in Las Vegas. Thanks very much, guys, for those contributions. You, our listeners, are the good side of boxing
1: here. <laughs> yes indeed yeah the the a- arthur abraham one really stands out to me as i didn't think of it at all i forgot all about it had i thought of yep. it that might have cracked my top five yeah
0: yeah all right that will do it for this week's episode of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney we will be back next week with a recap of saturday's showtime championship boxing card and much more until then thanks for listening be safe be kind and be well.